This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Today, I am interviewing Joe Hamya about three rooms. Joe completed an English degree at King's College London and an MST in Contemporary Literature and Culture at Oxford University. There, she divided her research between updating 20th century cultural theory into 21st century digital contexts and the impact of social media on form and questions of identity in contemporary women's writing. Since leaving Oxford, she has worked as a copy editor for Tatler and edited manuscripts subsequently published by Edinburgh University Press and Doubleday, UK. Three Rooms is her first novel. She lives in London. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, I am really excited to tell you about my latest sponsor, The Young Center, here in Houston. The Young Center is delighted to present author and producer Delia Efron on October 5th at their 2021 Fall Benefit, Who's in Your Inbox?, Delia Efron talks about life, change, and the relationships that matter. You know Delia's work. With her sister, Nora, she co-wrote You've Got Mail and co-produced Sleepless in Seattle. Delia's newest book, coming out in April, is Left on Fifth, A Second Chance at Life. In it, she describes her story of falling in love after the death of her husband and sister, being diagnosed with cancer, and living through it all with humor and grace. To register, go to younghouston.org and click on Delia Efron. I've included a link in the show notes. You will get $10 off your ticket when you write thoughts from a page in the notes. I am personally planning to attend online, and I hope to see you there as well. Welcome, Joe. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm well as well, and I'm really looking forward to speaking about Three Rooms. Thank you. Well, why don't we start out with you just talking a little bit about the story. Give me a quick synopsis. Sure. Uh, Three Rooms takes place between 2018 and 2019. It is told by a narrator who moves from Oxford to London and finally finds herself on a train heading back to her parents' house because at the beginning of the book, she's kind of tried to abide by a version of life that was handed down to her by her parents and by various sociopolitical superstructures the idea that she should find a stable nine to five, you know, find a mortgage, get a family, kind of have this very traditional heteronormative life. And the more she strives for it, the more it falls apart in a digitized gig economy. And around that, various ideas of nationalism and domestic issues in Britain are explored. So uh, Brexit being the key one, and also the fire at the Grenfell Tower, and various kind of iterations of visible and invisible homelessness. So it's, yeah, it's light summer reading, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking that. And I was like, and on that note, but it was a very good read. And it certainly made me think And I want to talk a little bit more about the book in terms of COVID happening. I mean, obviously, it's set in 2018 and 2019. But how do you think the pandemic has impacted your story? I mean, it's coming out kind of, you know, as we are heading into year two or in the midst of year two of the pandemic. And I felt like so much of what you were writing about was really relevant to what we're going through now. 
Yes, that's true. I mean, I've been in London for most of the pandemic, but um, especially in the first stages of the lockdown we had last March, it was really kind of made evident that the government was willing to support people who had managed to adhere to this kind of normative structure of life and who weren't dependent on a gig economy. So, you know, any kind of support that was given was came late for people who freelanced or, you know, who are like Uber drivers, delivery drivers, etc. And in in some cases, nothing has changed. I mean, just as recently as June, the New Statesman ran a piece on where Grenfell is years later. And yeah, at the moment, it's been three years of affected households who who suffered from the fire spending kind of disposable income to try and secure fire safety in their own homes or, you know, getting night watches to walk around the place to make sure they don't burn in their beds at night. In some ways, the pandemic has kind of heightened the issues that are discussed in three rooms. I think that's right. Accentuated them and made them seem even more relevant than they already were. Yeah. Well, and here we also have this sort of weird dynamic of so many jobs. I mean, everyone is looking for work. All of these businesses, you know, are trying to hire. And then there's so many people looking for work and so many jobs, but they're not seeming to match up. And I'm so curious to see after we finally get to the end of the pandemic, if that shakes out or if we're going to have just a whole new way that things are done. Um, I think it's probably inevitable. I mean, I can't remember what state this is for, but I saw a US congressman announce that he had just put the idea of a four day working week to Senate. I mean, good luck. I can never, I lived in Miami for for three years and watched my parents work extremely hard. I can't imagine the idea of a four day working week in America. But I mean, that idea has been filtering through here through labor for some time now. I know that friends of mine who have kind of more stable jobs are now more used to the idea of working remotely or hot desking. So uh, swings and roundabouts, you'd hope that the impact is good that certain aspects of gig economy that were untenable have been, I guess, enough light has been shed on their precarity to to now focus on solving uh, those issues. But on the other hand, I just, I still have so many friends who are still searching for jobs and still paying like really extortionate rent in a collapsing economy. So yeah, I'll be curious to see where it all lands when we're done and how it all shakes out whether the pandemic goes away or not, at some point, there's going to have to be some changes. Mm. What about research? What kind of research did you do for Three Rooms? Oh, because I guess the form of the book is led by news events between 2018 and 2019. I had a folder in my laptop for news stories at the time around Brexit and around Grenfell. I mean, there's a good few pages towards the end that concern the Grenfell Tower via inquiry. And research around that was kind of reading the inquiry report itself, which was quite harrowing. I mean, probably more harrowing to have been there, listening to a survivor testimony and witness testimony, like going back very scrupulously, scrupulously, sorry, over Twitter at that time to check the tenor and tone. A lot of the book is told through the experience of scrolling through social media or being on one's phone. And so I did have like a small dossier of news events and online events in 2018 between um, kind of September 2018 and October 2019. And then I guess there was a more kind of creative research process that was just reading a lot of poetry to try and find a more experimental form of prose in which to tell all of this. 
you lead me right into my next question, which was you don't use quotation marks for dialogue. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I know some people take real umbrage to this and see it as a pretension, which, you know, that's we all have our reading preferences. I actually find speech marks and kind of, you know, dialogue that's denoted through he said, she said at the end of every sentence to be uh, pretentious maybe isn't the word, but I, it's a very clear falsehood in books, which maybe in some way sounds a bit silly because, you know, novels are obviously false in the sense that they're, they're fiction, they're a story. But I've always, you know, it draws my attention away too much. And I had 10 drafts of this book before I started writing proper, not the whole thing, just the first 10,000 words or so. And I reworked them in a lot of ways. At some point, the book was a long poem. At some point, you know, it did have quotation marks and, you know, he said, she said at the end of every line. And I just found that it halted the prose. I couldn't write fluidly in that way. And I think I'm I'm aware that my book is potentially slightly obscure, but I, you know, I as a reader and readers that I find common ground with enjoy kind of taking time with a book. And so it wasn't any sort of you know, grand design to herald in an age of internet modernism. It was just I don't I don't like speech marks when I when I read or write. So I I didn't put them in and I had a more fluid time writing without them. You're not creating a revolution for no quotation marks. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, that's so funny because my book club read News of the World by Paulette Giles years ago. And she doesn't use quotation marks. And it didn't bother me in the slightest and it didn't bother me in your book either. But it was something we talked a lot about when we talked about the book. And it's funny because people do have, you know, strong ideas about it. But I'm always just more curious why people decide to go one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, it was a stylistic choice, but mainly for, for ease, because the prose is, you know, not wildly experimental, but it's drawn out of poetry. And so I needed a fluid way to write and constantly stopping to denote speech impeded that. It would have been a very clunky book with, you know, five or six unnecessary pages added to it for that. Now I'm going to be paying very close attention as I read as to how people handle that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now you've worked as an editor in the past, correct? I have, yes. So how did that impact your writing? Well, I, I can't say whether it's the reason it impacted my writing. I think I've always written to in this way to some degree, but then I've always edited but I, I tend not to move on from a sentence until I know that it's perfect. And so I edit as I go. So I'll rewrite a sentence maybe about four or five times, stop over it for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, as long as I need to, until I know that it's, it's exactly what I need and what I meant to say. And then I move on. And, and then that way, I, I write at a pace of about a thousand to two thousand words a day when I so it means that by the end of the week I usually have between six thousand and ten thousand words that I'm quite confident in. And when I hand a manuscript in to my agent or, you know, my editors, then I I know why everything is there and I, I have very specific reasons for it. It cuts down the editing time in the long run. So if you rework your sentences as you go, so you're very comfortable with each sentence and as you've put them together, when you're done with your initial draft, do you go back and edit again? Or do you feel like you are finished with that initial draft when you write your last sentence? Some of the editing I've done has been as a sub-editor and a copy editor. And so when I finish, I, I have a very big drink. 
and then I put it aside for about two weeks, really as long as I can, two weeks tends to be the limit. And then I do a copy edit on it, which I'm scrupulous out of habit, but also I'm not, I know I have a copy editor at my publishing houses who will do the same thing as well. And that's right because, you know, I can't catch all the mistakes in my own book. I'm, I'm too deep into it. And then I kind of leave it for another two weeks. I have a think over whether everything has fit together in the way that I expected it to. If it hasn't, I go back and fix some things. Generally speaking, yeah, I've, I've handed two books in to my publishers so far. And the pattern seems to have been that whatever I do on that first draft and then the second copy edited draft is quite, most things stay as they are, as I've written. And then I wait for other people to respond. And when I have feedback, I can go back and um, and see how I respond to it and whether it changes anything that I think about the book. That's so interesting because I think that's probably different than the way most authors approach it. Really? I, I wouldn't know. I haven't had the chance to speak to many of them. Well, I guess that makes sense. I just feel like most of the time people will write because they haven't been editors a lot of times. You know, they will write and then they will go back and kind of revise, revise, revise. But I think it's also unique and every author is very different. So probably you're somewhere in the middle. But I think with your editing background, you probably focus more on your initial draft than a lot of people do. Mm, Perhaps. I mean, that could also just be down to some sort of neuroticism. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I've never thought that there's a right or wrong way to do these things. I've always just kind of been led by what what satisfies me, what I think results in a good quality draft at the end of the day. I absolutely agree with that. I think whatever works for the individual is what should be done. And there's a million ways to do it. And if your way works, then keep at it. Yeah, of course. And there's the fact that there's always going to be someone who doesn't like your book because it doesn't have speech marks. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But you're leading a revolution. So it's all going to be that way. Uh, well, how long did it take you to write it? I mean, you talked about 10 drafts or at least 10 drafts of the early parts of the story. What was your writing process like? God, this is a while ago now. Uh, the 10 drafts, I think, happened in the space of about, I would say about two or three months for those first 10,000 words. Generally speaking, I'll spend about a year thinking about a book. So I did spend a year thinking about this one, not writing anything down, but you know, thinking occasionally. I keep a diary, so I would occasionally jot down or use it as a mechanism for thought. So just talk to myself, talk through ways that it could go in my diary. And then I did those 10 drafts while I had a full-time job and they were very loose. I think maybe three or four of those Word documents still exist. They were very informal, literally just taking, taking the same passage that I'd already written and then restructuring it in different ways to see what sounded best, I would speak out loud what I'd written to see whether it was good or not. And then actual writing, once I'd hit on a form, took, it lasted between December 2019 and March 2020. So I finished about two weeks before England went into lockdown. So how long is that? That's like five months-ish? That's not too bad. No, that's great. But it sounds like, of course, as you said, you had been thinking about it and playing with it and all of that. So all of that kind of factors in. Well, what do you hope readers take away from your book? <laughs> it's funny because b- before I had any reviews, and I can't, I can't complain, my, my reviews have been glowing so far, touch wood. I probably would have said that it's not up to me to kind of, to dictate what anyone takes away from the book. The only thing I will say now, having read 
my reviews and heard some people's thoughts on it is that there's a lot of focus on the book being anachronistic because it deals with the events of 2018 and 2019. And I've never really found that a valid complaint. I mean, historical fiction exists as a genre and there's a certain pleasure and even necessity in taking down the events, the particular events of a certain time of recording them and reconstructing them. And so I I would hope that I guess people could view it as a state of the nation book for England. And I suppose the other thing I would say is that it's it's not a book that makes very uh, black and white, straightforward moral arguments. And so I would hope that any reader of mine would be happy to work in a certain amount of kind of gray area or gray space and kind of think through it independently rather than waiting to be told, you know, what the what the core moral argument of the book is, because I don't I think reading is an exchange. So I yeah, those are the only two things that I've kind of noted or found myself hoping for since I've started hearing people's feedback. I think it's so interesting because I think authors do shy away from wanting to say, I think readers should take this away from my book. But on the other hand, it's always so interesting after reviews start coming in to hear some of the things that either surprise them or that people focus on. And so I'm always just curious when I ask that question, what kind of answer I'm going to get. Right. Well, I mean, to a certain degree, I don't know how other authors feel, because as I say, I haven't had the chance to meet many of them. But I definitely felt that once I'd sold the book and other people began working on it. I've been extremely fortunate with both my publishers in the UK and the US. I've got an extremely warm, talented, incredible group of people behind me on, on both fronts. But once they began working on it and jacketing it, editing it, writing copy for it, um, you know, putting together bios for me, you know, to go on the inside cover or whatever, I did feel myself get distanced from it. And I think to a degree that's kind of, it sounds quite cruel, but I sold it, right? And it's now it's now on shelves for $12.99 uh, in the UK. And I don't know how much it is in America, but it's out for people to buy and it's not wholly mine anymore. I mean, I, I wrote it, I'm proud of it. I take responsibility for it, but also it's the work of many people. And as as people read it and I suppose put their own life experience into it or take it in in their own ways it becomes less and less mine in a sense it's a sort of now it's more of an interaction with people than something that I own or have or whatever and especially I've now written a second book so I I feel even more distance from it I don't really think I have the right anymore to demand that people see a certain thing in it or get something specifically out of it well, and I think also once it is out there, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it, you, nothing can be changed. It is what it is. And so, yes, as people read it and interpret it or have their own comments, all you can do is just, I guess, listen and be interested in what people have to say. Yeah. And I, I do that with pleasure. And I think that's entirely right. And I think really it's a bit like it's it's been two years now since I wrote that book and three years since I kind of got the first idea for it. And I kind of, it's a bit like looking at a photo of myself when I was a teenager and I'm like, I wouldn't choose that outfit now. I wouldn't, you know, I don't recognize that face. And it's not been that long. I still recognize my book, but more and more, I think 
when I speak about it, it's like speaking about a past self. I found myself being sometimes overly critical of that past self and sometimes feeling resentment is the wrong word, but maybe a sort of, um, I, I, I do kind of wish that in, in the way that actors, when they do press for a film, they say it's so weird to be talking about this, like it's been in production forever and then it got edited and it's only just being released and I don't remember anything from being on set. It's kind of similar in a way. You know, I found myself having to reread my own book because <laughs> enough time had passed that I, you know, I didn't forget what was in it, but on a sentence by sentence level, something I once knew very intimately about it, I I forgot. And I don't think many, you know, at least people who who haven't been through the process of publishing a book, how could they be aware of that? But it, it seems very surprising to them to discover that distance between an author and that and their novel. But I I have the same thing with um, musicians. One of my favorite musicians is Nick Cave and his professional partner, Warren Ellis. They say that they don't listen to any of the Bad Seeds records after they finish them. And I found that inconceivable. I was like, you've created these stunning works of art. What do you mean you don't listen to them? But I suppose that happens to everyone. Well, that's so fascinating as you're talking about it to view it that way. And I think that probably is the way many authors view it, but I think you put it into such a concise, descriptive manner. I just love that because I think it is difficult. You've written another book. You're probably now focusing on getting that one ready to go and to have to kind of go back and relive the earlier parts of of Three Rooms is a little different. And as you said, difficult. And I think that makes perfect sense that you would have to sort of go back and review and look a little bit at parts of it. Yeah, but it's not always an unpleasant process. <laughs> oh, not at all. No, it could be really pleasant, actually. Yeah, you find yourself kind of reading your own book and going, oh, God, that was really good. Like, pat on the back. Right, exactly. I did that. <laughs> I'm so glad I included that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about your new book? You want to talk a little bit about what it's about or your new draft? I'm not sure where it is in the process. It's, uh, my editor has just read it. I don't actually know whether I am allowed to talk about it or not, but I think I can talk about it vaguely. It concerns itself with similar themes as in Three Rooms. So intergenerational relationships and what the internet has done to the way that generations relate to one another. Here specifically, I guess, in terms of what one age group finds acceptable in terms of social mores and morals and ethics and how you address people and let them live their life versus another. But what I've found really fascinating over the course of the pandemic is that the speed with which these things change thanks to the internet has been largely forgotten. And so I, you know, I found myself having conversations with older members of my family where, you know, they would express an opinion that was slightly different to mine on topics like gender or race or what have you. And, you know, talk about what it was like when they were growing up. And I would find one half of my brain kind of snorting the way that some people do on the internet and going, you know, catch up, catch up, get online. And the other part of my brain going, well, no, of course, because for years and years, it's been a certain way. And then in the span of about a decade, maybe a decade and a half, everything changed overnight and very quickly. And, you know, you've already lived over half your life. How can you catch up with this overnight? And I found myself looking for a similar kind of empathy online and finding very, very little of it. And so the book concerns itself primarily, I guess, with that gap, 
essentially what the internet has done to our thinking and how various age groups relate to one another. That is such a relevant topic. I have three teenagers <laughs> and the difference in what you know they're comfortable sharing and also and what I'm comfortable sharing are drastically different, but also the learning, okay, it's okay to share about yourself, but really before you share about a bunch of other people, you know, who live with you or are close to you, there probably need to be, there needs to be some kind of conversation. Like, are you okay with this out there? You know what I mean? It's, it's fascinating. It has been a complete overhaul of the way things are done and the way people view things and how information is disseminated. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely found myself dispirited in the aftermath of a lot of Black Lives Matter protests last summer because it was such a, it was such a huge wave of activism. It was such a huge movement, and, but really nothing huge changed at the end of that summer. And I found myself quite disappointed in myself for thinking that just because I could see it all over Instagram, that meant there would be tangible, long-lasting change in the long run. Obviously not so, but, but this wasn't a surprise to my parents at all. And that kind of difference is what I'm what I'm interested in of what exactly it is that something like Facebook or Twitter has done to the brains of people my age and how quickly we can expect social change and what kind of social change we expect as well. Because a lot of what happened last summer was, it's already been discussed in far more nuance than I can offer off the cuff on a podcast, but it was so performative. And I, to, to some people that was entirely okay. And it's not so much that I'm interested in criticizing the fact that so many people thought that it was okay, I'm just interested in finding out why. <laughs> like, why Why is it okay for you to share a black square in, in solidarity of BLM for a day and then not do anything else afterwards and, and kind of pat yourself on the back and then say that you've kind of, you know, you've solved racism when the evidence around you is completely to the contrary? And, and, and everyone came out with these kind of statements of, you know, there's still so much work to be done, but, but was it done in the aftermath, really? And as I say, my, my, my parents were kind of, you know, they looked on indulgently. And, and in many ways, I disagreed with a lot of the conversations we had as well. There was a, a kind of, I don't know how to put it, event is the wrong word, but there was a vigil for a woman named Sarah Everard who was murdered in London that happened uh, while there was still a large wave of COVID outbreaks. And that vigil was stormed by the police and a lot of women were brutalized. And I had, you know, a kind of strange conversation with some of my loved ones where I completely disagreed with their view on gender rights and what's acceptable how, and how women should be treated at a peaceful vigil. But then equally, I could also see them saying, well, these things don't change overnight. You can't expect, you can't expect an entire kind of social system and law enforcement system to come down overnight and for everyone to suddenly be okay with you. And I was like, yes, no, but it should. And it's that <laughs> tension right. that, that I guess the second book is interested in exploring because it's not that either side is wholly wrong, but it's not that either side is wholly right either. And I think the gap between them is the kind of site of struggle of where new sociopolitical kind of precepts get made and how things go forward. Well, I do agree with you that that is a very deep conversation and certainly not one we can resolve, you know, in our podcast conversation. But I do agree that there's a lot with social media that I think creates a problem in those events versus helping solve the problem. 
I think a lot of people jump on the bandwagon and show their support with the black square for a day or whatever it is, however they're doing it, but they're not really doing the work. They're just putting up this black square or talking about how many books they've read that are you know related to this. And, and I think instead, really, those that are most of the time doing the work aren't talking about it. They're just doing the work. Yes. But in a sense, I mean, I... Uh, I agree with you, but in a sense, I guess what I'm really fascinated by is not so much whether the work is being done or not, although obviously I, you know, outside of my writing life do fully agree with you. It's just that I'm so fascinated by the thought process that leads to someone posting a black square on their on their Instagram profile or on Twitter or whatever, and thinking, yes, great, fantastic, I'm doing something really worthwhile here. And that it's not a kind of righteous commentary or critical commentary that I'm giving at all. I just, it's such a widespread thought process at this point. I think it deserves serious examination. I think you're exactly right. And that's something that has concerned me for a while. But again, you know, it's not something we're going to delve into deeply here. But I think as you watch it unfold, it always just kind of really makes me uncomfortable and often cringe. And I just feel like that I think I think there's many reasons people do that, but I think a lot of times the most of those reasons have nothing to do with the event. Yes, you could say it's vanity, but then I I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm you know, I'm twenty-four, maybe I'm too naive, but I I do I do genuinely think that for some people it's it's more than performative. It's you know, you get this in a different context with the idea of internet feminism or, you know, high fashion feminism of people walking around in, you know, like Dior t-shirts that say, this is what a feminist looks like. And, and to them, that is genuinely feminism. And, and maybe, you know, in, in a very cynical sense, it's feminism because it benefits them and they don't think outside of, outside of their own, uh, superstructures. But on the other hand, that then gets passed out, like it lets t-shirt feminism as an example, that then gets filtered down into kind of like retail, high street stores, fast fashion websites. And that becomes the norm. And all of a sudden you have this wave of feminism that is kind of, you know, girl boss t-shirt feminism (laughs) that people genuinely believe in. And I, again, I'm so fascinated by the mechanisms that make that happen. I think they're mostly digital and they're not going away. And I think it would benefit everyone just to think about them very, very carefully because there there are some things to pick out of the way that the internet has influenced a kind of wave of activism, the camaraderie and a kind of globalized awareness of events. But then in another sense, the lack of awareness for what is happening around you just on a local level which which is often what leads to a kind of performative globalized activism is troubling but i still i find it so interesting it's probably why i've written about two books on it now <laughs> <laughs> well i look forward to your next one because it sounds like it will be very interesting and thought provoking thank you well before we wrap up i would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked joe i am about halfway through katie kitamura's intimacies at the moment and i adore it i think it's so clever I I kind of spent the first 10 pages thinking, this is bumpy. This is a bit weird. The grammar in this doesn't go the way that I expect it to. And then after about a third of the book, I realized, oh God, she's a genius. Because it is a book about the way that language has the potential to create gaps in meaning. It's a book about a translator. And so 
nuances of translation are really important in that in that novel. And I find myself reading it in the same way that I'll read over a WhatsApp conversation after I've had an argument with someone, which is to say, to kind of seek out where exactly meaning has been made in sentences. So it's, you know, it's not bumpy at all. It's actually a really ingenious book. I love that. I've loved recently Marion Engel's Bear, which has just been republished in the UK, a Canadian novel, which is essentially just about bestiality. But I also took it as a kind of novel about colonialism. Uh, but either way, it's a it's a riot. And Patricia Lockwood has written really brilliantly about it for the LRB. And I've also recently loved Jack Underwood's A Year in the New Life, which is a collection of poetry written for his, uh, I think, four-year-old daughter. And it's scathing and witty and just it, the language in it sparkles. It's so formally brilliant. And it's probably one of the books that if I write another novel, I'll go back to it to try and figure out what Jack did so that I can do something similar. <laughs> Um, that has to be so fascinating as a writer to read other people's books and think, like you said, with the first one about intim- intimacies, what what it was about the grammar that kind of, you know, initially hung you up. But then you were like, oh, actually, this is fascinating. It's It's got to be so wild to to look at it from that other perspective. Oh, I think I've I've always read books that way. I'm, I have two English degrees. I'm about to apply for a PhD. And the the attraction of reading and writing for me has always been language and linguistics. And so that's potentially why, you know, I write possibly obscure books. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, that's, that's my primary interest in, in most fiction. Well, that makes sense. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks so much to my sponsors, the Young Center Houston and Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group. They really help me continue to produce this podcast. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.